I'm Yonit Levy from Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts. Unholy, two Jews on the news, Yonit. I've had some interesting reactions even to that little phrase because some people think, is it just a little bit, is it a little bit too Jewish? Is it too Jew to say two Jews on the news? And also some people think the rhyme, the rhyme is too much. What do you think? What, what the, that's the difference. See, that, that's the difference between um, Jews in Israel and Jews living anywhere else in the world, because I've only gotten the response of saying, that's a great name. No one in Israel thinks something is too Jewish. You just can't yeah. be too Jewish. No, so, except that works and, and very I've had well people here. Say, you know, is it a little bit kind of, you know, Florida early bird supper at five p.m. You know, where <laughs> you're saying that it like good, it's a bad thing. Is it, is it good for the Jews? You know, I've got to know. Uh, Harry, put it down. Put down the put down the beef. I got to know. Is it good for the Jews? You know, as, as if two Jews on the news is like on one of those. You know, Boca Raton community stations. That's the, <laughs> or you that's, expect- <laughs> that's the pushback. <laughs> or, or Kyle Reiner and Mel Brooks are going to read newspapers right on the podcast, which is what exactly. you'd expect. <laughs> that's exactly. Well, look, Alavai, we, we should be so lucky to be the Kyle Reiner Indeed. and Mel Brooks Indeed. of I'm- Jewish current affairs and Israeli news. Um, no, that would be a good comparison. But that's what we're going to be doing, talking about what's going on in the world. And yet again, Yonit, we have a lot to get our teeth into. I mean, history made on Capitol Hill this week. There was history made last week of the rather horrible kind with the storming of the Capitol. But this time, um, the transfer of power, you hesitate to say peaceful transfer of power, but the ceremony went ahead. The inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris happened after everything that went before it. It did. It did indeed. And you mentioned it. I mean, two weeks ago, the storming of the Capitol. One week ago, the president impeached by the House again. And this uh, inauguration happening, very uh, different from previous inaugurations. But I think there was a moment there, right, with uh, with Kamala Harris swearing in, uh, that whatever your opinions are, that is, that is a moment for history. Yeah. So a Jewish thing here, which is, the notion there's always a Jewish seeing, thing. Jonathan. There's always a Jewish thing. No, but the thing is always the the thing of seeing yourself represented. I think I, you know, Jewishly, I understand that. In other words, the idea of uh, you know, my kid, for example, my youngest son, when we travel, uh, when he was very little. When we would arrive at an airport, if there were, you know, lots of flag, flags and everything, but the welcome to, you know, was in different languages. If he saw it in Hebrew, <laughs> this is a British kid, right? A British Jewish kid. But if he saw it in Hebrew, he would get a little kick because he felt as if somehow, this is even as a child, on some level he'd been recognised. And therefore that, imp- or acknowledged, that impulse to, um, that need really, to see yourself being, you know, I think we get that, why it would be so important for black Americans or, or, you know, uh, Americans of Asian descent to see one of their number up there. And it made me think while Kamala Harris was up there, what will it be like when there is finally a Jewish vice president or president of the United States? It's going to be quite, I mean, it's amazing that it still hasn't happened. Uh, but, it's you know, it's I, going to take a while. I, I, I sort of vicariously had that moment. So anyway, we must say that there are many uh, Jews appointed to uh, Joe Biden's cabinet. So, yeah, I, I, like I say, I, I had a sort of vicarious thrill in a way seeing uh, Kamala Harris up there because I was imagining what it would be like. But in a way, we don't need to imagine. Um, There's a Jewish connection. Obviously, Kamala Harris's husband, the so-called second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, uh, is Jewish. But it's more, I think, more substantively and more importantly, is the number of Jews that uh, 
Joe Biden's appointed to key positions. Now, like I say, with the sort of Florida Jewish couple in my mind a little bit, I am wary of this game. I am aware that there can be a little, you know, so how many Jews are there? And, you know, people did this even with Donald Trump, who had Stephen Mnuchin at Treasury and Gary Cohn as his chief economic advisor. Um, But nevertheless, it is striking that there are um, at least... 10 prominent Jews nominated key positions. The forward of Jewish paper was joking that there would be enough numbers to have a minion in the West Wing. <laughs> that joke's been going around a while. But, you know, you can go through them. It is, they're in significant places. You know, he's chief of staff, Ron Klain, Tony Blinken, a secretary of state who's made a huge thing in his, uh, in his testimony when he appeared before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for his nomination to be... Uh, ratified, he straight away talked about his stepfather, uh, Samuel Pisa, who was really a very prominent uh, Holocaust survivor. And Tony Blinken talked about that. Uh, Janet Yellen at Treasury. Uh, the Attorney General is Merrick Garland, who was denied a spot on the Supreme Court. But, you know, Joe Biden brings him back as Attorney General. Alejandro Mayorkas as Homeland Security He's Secretary. Avril Haines, Director of National Intelligence. Mm-hmm. Wendy Sherman as Deputy Secretary of State. On and on it goes. There are more names there. Um, you know, you'd have to be egalitarian in your rules. You'd have to say women count as a minion. But if you make that shift, if you're reform or uh, conservative and you allow women to take part in a minion, you definitely have a minion in the West Wing uh, now. The question, I suppose, is whether it matters at all. I mean, in a way, there was Donald Trump, who did have a couple of Jews around. Uh, Incidentally, small parenthesis on that, I always thought it was amazing, and people pointed this out, that Donald Trump used to appoint cabinet members to sort of ethnic type. And so, you know, his housing and urban development secretary was black, and his head of education was a woman because he could imagine a woman as a school teacher, you know, and he imagined you know, how urban development, that's black people. And so similarly, people noticed that um, his two Jewish appointments were to deal with money. It was the Treasury Secretary and the, you know, economic advisor. He sort of played to that. And he used to say, didn't he, you know, Mattis was his defence uh, secretary because he looked like something out of central casting. Central casting in Donald Trump's head was very kind of ethnically stereotyped, Joe Biden's already done more than that. He's got people in all kinds of fields, not just, you know, handling the cash. Um, He's not playing to that caricature. I suppose the only question, I'm very interested to hear what you think on this, Yoni. Does it matter? Does it matter? You know, is it good for the Jews if there are lots of Jews around an American president? I don't know. What do you think? Well, at first, I, I mean, besides the communal pride we all have, right? It's one of the perks of being a minority. You have this, you share this communal pride in in, in that fact. You know, I think we have to relate to the fact that there is obviously a rift between the majority of Jews in the United States and the majority of Israeli Jews, right? I mean, they're not on the same page politically. Um, And for four years, the thoughts of American Jewish Democrats, who are, uh, you know, the larger part of the Jewish electorate, were sidelined because it was easier for the right-wing government and for the right in Israel to listen to the Republican Jews that are a minority, the, for example, you know, Ambassador David Friedman, who's more to the right than Netanyahu, and to the evangelicals. And they sidelined the, the majority of Jewish Jews. Now, that, now their voices are going to become much more important, much more important in relevance to Israel as well. So there's a question here, what, what the future of this is. But I mean, um, uh, for sure, it's something that, that 
Israel is noticing. That is uh, definitely the case. I mean, this goes to a really interesting distinction and is it's one of the gaps, you know, from those inside Israel to those Jews outside it is they're not the same thing at all. You can be really good for Israel, and you've mentioned Trump and David Friedman, and yet still be sort of out of step with American Jews who are, you know, skew overwhelmingly liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, Jews are the religious minority who are most loyal to the Democratic Party more than any other faith community. Even if you put a different label on it and talk about them as an ethnic minority, uh, Jews are second only to African Americans in their fidelity to the Democratic Party. I think, you know, exit polls vary, but there was one exit poll certainly that said 77% Mm-hmm. of, or maybe it was in 78%, but of American it was Jews 75, I think, uh, voted yeah. for Joe Biden. So there's a real comfort there. Do, you know, American Jews skew very liberal on social issues, abortion, on, on, on same-sex marriage, and all those social questions. They are just down-the-line Democrats. It doesn't matter what's happened to them in terms of their position, in socioeconomic position. They have, they're absolutely in step with the Democrats on all those, you know, American issues. And then it gets mm-hmm. complicated uh when it gets, you know, when when you introduce Israel into the equation. Just on the on the fit of Joe Biden, he, he not only do America you know American Jews vote Democratic, uh, there is a particular fit, I think, between American Jews and the kind of Democrat Joe Biden is. Now Younger Jews are getting more and more progressive and they may be more, you know, comfortable with Bernie Sanders or the squad or whatever. But I think your sort of, you know, the the mainstream centre of gravity of American Jewry just feels comfortable with, you know, with somebody like Joe Biden who is, you know, just sort of relaxed around Jews. And I think that's something... Of course. Remember when when his daughter married a Jewish doctor, which is the supreme type of Jew. And he said, you know, I'm the only Irish Catholic, you know, who has his dream met because his daughter married a Jewish surgeon, right? I mean, it's obvious <laughs> that he has sympathy uh, and empathy for minorities in general. And, and, and of course, for, for the Jewish minority, that's, that's pretty clear. Um, but I think, um, did I cut you off there, Jonathan? Were you in still making a point? And no, I just... no, I was just, I was enjoying the Jewish surgeon reference, our second Jewish <laughs> doctor joke, but also because it's no joke. I mean, all three of his children mm-hmm. married Jewish spouses. And, you know, the baby grandson uh, that he, uh, you know, held in his arms in one of the photographs that went around, uh, you know, is halachically Jewish, etc. I'm wary of going down this road. I'm I'm, I'm monitoring myself as I say it, because, of (laughs) course, people, you know, defended Trump on this count by saying, look, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is Jewish. Ivanka converted to Judaism. He has Jewish grandchildren. Therefore, he's obviously, you know, a a wonderful friend of the Jews, even though I thought so many of the uh, points that Trump would make resorted to, I thought, quite old-fashioned anti-Jewish tropes about money and lending and chiseling to get a good deal and so on. So I'm wary of going down the children-grandchildren line. But nevertheless, the fact that, you know, Biden says and jokes that he's been going to, you know, a Seder almost as long as he's been going to to Catholic Mass because of what's happened with his blended family. You know, I, th- I think anyway, there is just a kind of degree of comfort 
in Joe Biden with American Jews that he, you, you know, he's relaxed around them. I think it's no coincidence that he's, you know, appointed lots. I think he's just in that milieu where the difference opens up is absolutely on Israel. And they're, you know, they're, right. it's an interesting question, you know, would they prefer someone like Trump who may be less good on Jewish stuff because he's down the line with, you know, the Netanyahu position? I think that is exactly the question. And when you, uh, first of all, we have to say that Joe Biden you know, is is as he called himself often, I'm a Zionist at heart, right? There's no question the whole story he always tells about Golda Meir, you know, how he was worried on the eve of the Yom Kippur War as a young senator. And then she said to him, you know, don't worry because we have a secret ingredient in our war against the Arabs. And he says, what? And she says, we have nowhere else to go. And he tells this story for 40 years, right? And there's this famous thing he says to Bibi, you know, it's his quote, I don't agree with the damn thing you say, but I love you. Um, it's clear, right, that he has uh, a very warm feelings. But um, in the eyes, of, first of all, we have to realize that Israeli Israelis in general are getting off a sugar rush, right? I mean, for four years, they've been running around the candy store. No one is telling them anything. Just to eat whatever you want. You get ice cream three times a day. And now they're back to the classic, even Bush uh, or, or Clinton or Obama administration saying, we got to go back to balanced meals, right? So they're going to have a comparison that is different. And Netanyahu himself is not going to be the first in line getting the biggest portion. He's just going to stand in line with everyone else waiting for his turn. It's a different page. Um, and I think Israelis uh, realize that. Um, and the one issue, the kind of, I mean, you listen to Tony Blinken and his confirmation uh, hearings in the Senate, he sounded, I mean, there are a lot of things that most, even the mainstream Israeli would, would completely agree with. But there is the issue of Iran. And I think that will become quite quickly something something to deal with. Um, I will, you know, try and <laughs> I'm trying to give it's a very complicated manner and I don't want to a complicated issue. I don't want to drop two tons of uranium, nurturing uranium on somebody's lap when they're opening the podcast. So I apologize. But obviously, um, you definitely don't want to do that. I, <laughs> I don't want to do that Enriched anyway. Uranium yeah, on someone's probably, lap. probably not. Probably not a good <laughs> idea. Um, no, but I think it's important to understand where both sides are and, you know, what a delicate diplomatic dance has to be uh has to occur here for for them to be somewhat on the same page obviously what the americans are saying is of course the iran deal was a good deal we managed to reduce uh uranium stockpiles we managed to move uh, to to pull back iran from being on the verge of breakout to at least a year um, and we need to return to that, right? And you've seen the same people in, in, in the positions that are relevant to this. You mentioned Wendy Sherman, of course, Jake Sullivan, Colin Call, the people who are supposed to go back to the JCPOA or some version of it. And Israel is trying to say, and not only Netanyahu, right, the defense, uh, um, um, you know, the defense establishment is trying to say, wait a minute, <laughs> uh, we... Obviously, the, the deal is going to be reached, but wait, li please listen to us. I, we think the deal wasn't good enough. We think that the, Iran was uh, able to make some progress in the plan unsupervised to say nothing. What would happen when the deal uh, expired? We think there is leverage here that the Trump administration left you and, and maybe we should use it. Now, that is, of course, very problematic to say to the Biden administration, use the leverage you got from the Trump administration. As I said, it's a delicate dance on a good day when you add the baggage left by Netanyahu and the Democrats after what, you know, the whole story with 2015 going to the Congress over the head of the president, it's going to be very, very, very uh, delicate, maybe even tumultuous. Yeah, I think the idea of the sugar rush is so good. I think that's completely right, that the usual restraints, Republican or Democrat, 
that were on Israeli prime ministers were taken off in those four years. And it was sort of very unreal. And there's no doubt that Israel has benefited long term. I say Israel, you know, the Netanyahu government and his position has benefited long term. So, for example, it wasn't much reported because there's so much else going on. But Tony Blinken, the new Secretary of State, in that confirmation hearing was asked about the embassy in Jerusalem and, you know, does that stand? And he said, you know, Jerusalem is the capital and we're not, we have no plans to move that embassy. Yes and And yes, he answered to Ted Cruz, right. Yeah, I mean, and and there's an example of something, there's no, I don't think there's any way no one would say the Biden administration, if it was starting from uh, square one, would have done that itself and move the embassy. I don't think it would have done that, absent Mm -hmm. a a sort of negotiated agreement with the Palestinians. But now that it's done, they're not going to undo it. And so there are some, you know, facts on the ground that have been created by the Trump administration. And uh, I was speaking to somebody not uh, uh, particularly well disposed to Trump, but a diplomat who was saying, that on the issue of Iran, to go back to that crucial one, that look, in some ways, Trump won the argument that he had did expose the defects in the agreement and Iran has not been behaving particularly responsibly in that period. And therefore, it would be hard after the last four years for Biden to suddenly say, well, we're going to, again, revert back to where we were as if nothing had happened. uh, And, and, you know, in some ways, Trump had moved the ball along and made people see Iran uh, through a different light. I mean, the issue that, uh, you know, I I, I was hearing from quite a few, you know, policymakers in a conversation that happened uh, that I was, you know, listening in on earlier this week. And the one thing I think is... Uh, they're, 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 from their point of view, they're in the opposite position of Netanyahu. They are thinking, oh, good, there's going to be convergence between us and Joe Biden on Iran. Remember, Britain and the EU plus three, you know, the uh, the Germans and the French, they were all for mm-hmm. this Iran deal and stayed with it, even mm-hmm. when uh, Trump moved the American government out of it. Uh, and they thought, good, Biden's coming back. Uh, we'll get back on track with the Iran deal. The one thing that I think they realise could be a sort of break on that isn't the sheer persuasive brilliance of Netanyahu who will persuade Biden away from the Iran deal, but rather the simple question of bandwidth and how mm-hmm. much the Biden administration has to get on with, uh, you know, dealing with the pandemic, Um dealing with, as he said in his inaugural speech, repairing alliances, you know, restoring democratic norms in the United States, how much energy is there to go into putting, you know, the Humpty Dumpty of the Iran deal back together again, given how much else there is? You know, in in other times, it might have been priority number two or three for the Biden administration. Instead, maybe it's more like six or seven, given how much they've got to do. Look, I think that the the wheels are in motion on this. I think the parts of the Biden administration will uh, uh, move forward with this. And I think that Netanyahu feels like he is in in a predicament because he uh, can't go to Congress like he went last time. No one's going to invite him. No one's going to listen to him. And I think that the Jewish Democrats are less... um, the, the, they less have the patience to to listen to him. You add upon that that he's, of course, in a, in a uh, two months before the elections. I see this becoming... Uh, maybe it's because I'm a pessimist, right? I'm from Israel. You're supposed to be the optimist from the outside. Um, I see this becoming uh, quite an issue. I've lost count of how many elections Netanyahu has run on simply the Iran issue 
alone almost, casting himself as, you know, the protector of Israel from Iran. You know, is given what's happened with the transfer from Trump to Biden, does that still work for him? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this, that's a question of how much he this is going to be an issue in his uh, campaign. You, you mentioned that he was always the protector of Israel, right? Um, and now he is uh, portraying himself as the national vaccinator, right? That is the, that is the line. That sounds like something, the vaccinator sounds like a uh, pitch for a DC Comics movie that never sort of took off, right? It's like, he's the vaccinator. What does he do? Uh, he sticks syringes in people's arms. Uh, does he wear tights? Uh, it never worked. But anyway, he's the national vaccinator, right? I mean, he also framed his syringe this week, the first syringe giving the uh, vaccinations in Israel. It's in his office. Um, and it, the problem is that on the one hand, uh, we are talking about a, a country with the highest vaccination rate per capita, good for BB, but also simultaneously the country with the highest coronavirus infections per capita, which is bad for him and for everyone else, uh, we must add. Um, and one of the reasons for that is, again, not not the only reason, but the, one of the main reasons is because parts of the ultra-Orthodox community, the Haredi community, are not obeying the coronavirus restrictions. You add that, uh, and that means that schools are open, that means that there are weddings and there are funerals. You add to that the British variant. Thanks for that, Jonathan, by the way. Um, next time, just I'm, send chocolate. Just send chocolate. I'm not having that, Yoni. I refuse to take <laughs> a responsibility. You're not, you're not the talking British get great okay. credit for spotting it first. And, you oh, know, it didn't you. mean that we, we invented it or created it, if you don't <laughs> mind. It was rather that British to Britain does this great thing of sequencing, DNA sequencing of the virus mm -hmm. and spotted this new variant who knows where it came from Yoni. i understand so next time when i know. we ask you to send us uh, something nice just get us some chocolate or a nice book okay that's yeah, what i'm okay. saying well, but we're, you, we're not you, claiming credit for that one but yes do go you on couple it with the variant and with the fact that they're not a, some of them are not obeying the coronavirus restrictions then you have numbers that are staggering which means that 40 percent of every uh, uh um new coronavirus uh, numbers are, are Haredis or ultra-Orthodox. They're just 12% of the population, right? So you do the math. Um, and he is not dealing with it because of the fact that they are his most important political allies. Uh, now, he's getting a lot of heat for that. There is a, a growing anti-Orthodox, anti-Haredi uh, sentiment in the Israeli uh, public sphere. I don't know who's going to pick up on that, right? Because Gidon Saar, for example, is also very, uh, has very strong connections to them and he needs them if he wants to uh, be prime minister. Even Yair Lapid, whose ticket was in the beginning of his uh, race, uh, anti-Haredi and anti-ultra-Orthodox, uh, uh, he's sort of walking back on this. So it is, it is a question of what this will do to his campaign. Last week we were saying, you know, he's going to ride the vaccinations all the way to March 23rd. The, the picture, as always in Israel, uh, you know, the land of extreme contradictions or contradictory extremes uh, is always a little more complicated. I would really be worried on a social cohesion level about what you've described there. And I'm very interested to know, almost outside politics, just in terms of day to day, the idea that most Israelis also, or non-ultra-Orthodox Israelis are denied being able to send their children to school and they cannot gather for weddings and big gatherings, and they see one community who are exempt from those rules. That is a recipe for, I mean, let's face it, if that was happening outside Israel, you'd say that's anti, that would be a recipe for anti-Semitism. If, you know, the visible, strictly Orthodox Jews are have one rule for them and one rule for everyone else. I mean, you mentioned Yair Lapid, and, you know, the thing we all know about him is that he famously ran on a kind of anti-Haredi platform. And so did his father before him. I mean, mm -hmm. is that is is that not absolutely fertile ground for 
a really massive, almost as I say, beyond politics, anti Haredi backlash that develops into something, you know, close to real sort of hatred. You're, I mean, you're, you're, as usual, you're, you're on point on this. First of all, we have to say they're not hom- homogenous, right? I mean, there are parts of the Haredi community that, that obey the restrictions completely. But uh, indeed, the sentiment is growing. And I think Lapid, who would be the classic, you know, person to uh, profit off this politically, is is also being very careful because he's seeing the future in the numbers and saying, wait, the most important thing is to move Netanyahu, right, to take him out of office. And then if I want to go with Gidon Sar and I want to go with the ultra-Orthodox, just the math is, again, they have about 16 seats in the the Israeli uh, Knesset. That's a lot. Um, so Bibi is 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 holding them very tight, right? He's Bibi from the block. His block is the the Likud and the Haredim, and and you see Leila Pid being very careful. Lieberman, by the way, is less careful. That's still his ticket. But I think you're asking a, a larger question about the future of the country and solidarity and have we built this uh, sort of uh, autonomy inside this country and what is going to happen the day after the coronavirus, the day after the elections, right? Uh, the fifth or sixth or seventh. But there's going to be a day after and we're going to have to live together. And the level of animosity uh, towards that community and anger. And and by the way, I mean, it's I don't want to say it's justifiable, but it, you can understand the people who whose children are withering away at home for weeks and months. And, and s- many of the schools in the Haredi community are open. So you can understand that there is a rift uh, being created there that I don't know how uh, anyone will will be able to resolve. Yeah, and what you would hope uh, is that there are leaders within the Haredi community who themselves are thinking it isn't good for us long term to be seen as outside the the norms everyone else is having to comply with, that we will be resented long term if that happens. I mean, I speak as someone, I live in the in the neighbourhood in, in London where uh, the ultra-Orthodox community live. My neighbours on both sides are Haredim. And, you know, it's really interesting because some of them are really alive to this. And so when lockdown first kicked in here in Britain, uh, you know, the rules said you can't have religious services. And so they were you know, davening, shacharit and, you know, mariv in the gardens here. So my morning would begin with hearing, you know, prayer coming from the garden to my left and the garden to my right, you know, because they knew they needed to not be uh, seen to be breaking the rules. And um, that's some of them. And yet there were others, same community, uh, who were very blatantly still gathering in their synagogues. And, you know, people like me were worried that other people, non-Jews, would think, you know, why are these people breaking the rules? So, you know, there are different strands. As you say, this isn't homogenous. These are There are nuances, but there are, are at least and should be some voices saying, mm-hmm. look, this may not be, even if we can get away with it, because BB needs our votes, this isn't good for us long term in terms of our place in this society. So, that I, you know, to me, that's just the kind of, you know, exactly how coronavirus has operated around the world, which is it's sort of put a magnifying glass over social issues that were there already. This issue, in, in inside Israel and outside it, about how the ultra-Orthodox community live with their Jewish neighbours and their non-Jewish neighbours was an issue before coronavirus. But coronavirus has put a very interesting kind of magnifying lens on it. And, you know, what you're describing there is is just another example. I have to um, mention one thing because you've talked about uh, Bibi so proud of the vaccination uh, project to the point where he's even got the, you know, the syringe in a frame, which I think is fantastic. I hadn't heard that. The uh, we, we talked, I think, last time about the extent to which people around the world are looking at Israel as a potential model. And, and, and you know, and that definitely is happening 
uh, a bit, you know, on one of the BBC phone-ins today, they had a correspondent, you know, a journalist from Israel on there to talk about vaccination rollout, how it's working. Yes, they always do mention this question of whether Israel should or is obliged to uh, vaccinate the um, Palestinian population in the West Bank uh, and in Gaza, but they, you know, real uh, uh, interest in what Israel is doing. But some concern as well, um, partly because of what you've been saying about how the infection rate is still going. And this week, the uh, UK chief scientific advisor, Sir Patrick Vallance, said he's going to be looking and is looking very carefully at um, the new data from Israel, partly because they are worried that the first dose of the Pfizer uh, BioNTech vaccine is not giving the protection that they were hoping it would. And the reason why that first dose has huge salience here in the UK is that Britain has made a decision to leave a long gap between the first dose and second dose, Mm -hmm. much longer than the advice of the drug manufacturers themselves, who say, I think it should be, well, you'll tell me, two or three weeks, I think is what Israel is doing, in um, two? Three weeks. So three. Okay, three-week three week gap. In the UK, the decision has been uh, to, to actually in, give as many people as possible a first dose and then wait 12 weeks before giving them the second, the idea being at least get m- m- as a thin and wide cover uh, rather than narrow and deep. But that was predicated on the idea that a first dose of Pfizer would give you quite a lot of protection. The evidence from Israel, and this is why the the you know the chief scientific advisor is saying I'm really looking at it very closely, is maybe that isn't good enough because, and we've all been seeing it. Even you know the former chief rabbi, I think um, chief mm-hmm. rabbi Lau, contracting right. coronavirus. Even his case, even after two doses, people are really watching, thinking maybe one dose is not enough. Yeah, I know. Um, since Israel is is becoming like this pilot, right, the model nation that might actually be vaccinated uh, uh, before the first country to be almost totally vaccinated, there are, there are questions. Uh, and as you say, uh, Israel has decided to have that three week gap. Um, and the um, I think the astonishing thing for many Israelis is the fact that they, you know, they're so proud of the vaccination operation. It's almost a month since the first uh, vaccination, and the numbers aren't dropping, right? That it's a much longer process than what uh, we had thought uh, from from the outset. It's going to take yeah. time. I mean, it is an amazing idea of Israel, not just startup nation, but kind of guinea pig nation and people watching it uh, around the world. But you're right, there was this hope that you could begin to ease lockdown because the vaccination vaccine would kick in and, if, and early and have an Im- a quick impact. And yeah, the, the, yeah, the Israel thing is a worrying precedent. Um, we have to mention one more political story breaking yes. from this country, which is the fact that Gidon Starr uh, started working with the Lincoln Project, right? Um, the uh, Republican strategists who got under Trump's skin uh, because, precisely because they were Republican strategists. Um, and he started working with him with the first uh, video up. Um, and uh, I think it begs the question of how much this will affect 
um, the, you know, the election in this country. Um, I think it's it's also interesting to note that um, a lot of people from outside Israel think that uh, Gidon Saar is a moderate in his opinions because of the fact that he's anti-Bibi, because of, he talks about the rule of law, etc. He is not, right? If anything, he is a little bit more to the right of, of Benjamin Netanyahu. But these are the people that he started working with. I think that's very interesting uh, because that is what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to top on Netanyahu, and this is very clear that that is his message. He's not going to—he doesn't want to run with him. He doesn't want to be under him in a coalition. He wants to replace him. I think it's a fascinating development, partly for all the reasons you've said about what it will do inside Israel, but also uh, in itself. But one thing it suggests that Israel, once again, is this kind of guinea pig nation. It's the first time, as far as I know, that the Lincoln Project have taken their show on the road uh, Mm -hmm. outside the United States. Uh, They're testing the exportability of their proposition, which was, uh, it seemed, unique to the challenge against Trump, but actually it exists in many, many places, which is the idea of still appealing to the traditional right, but saying this one manifestation of it is somehow an aberration, that Trump was not a real Republican, he was an aberration. And my guess is their message for Gidon Tsar is going to be, you know, you can still be a true Likudnik, a true, you know, Israeli nationalist, but Bibi is the aberration, you know, partly because of his you know, departure from, uh, the, you know, the, the norms of the law. And I'm fascinated to know if it works with Gidon Saar, almost it's more important than if it worked against Trump. Because with Trump, you could say, well, look, that was such a wild, extreme case. Mm-hmm. But if Gidon Saar, it works, and we know there's a, a mixed history of American consultants coming in and trying their message oh, yes. <laughs> in Israel, and, and here too, actually. Um, but if it works, will that then become the means, will that consultancy or the Lincoln Project template become the model adopted by all kinds of places where there is a, a, a fight against populism? So, you know, will will there be the opposition in Hungary and Poland hiring Steve Schmidt and the Lincoln guys to take on, you know, Orban or, or, or the government in Warsaw? And I'm thinking about Britain where, you know, this has come a bit too late. If only we there had been a Lincoln Project pre-2016, before the Brexit referendum, that could have channeled that conser- you know, energy among conservatives who were not pro-Brexit, were pro-European conservatives. They never got their act together, really. Those pro-European yeah. conservatives remain conservatives. They needed a vehicle, a, you know, a message like the Lincoln Project. Maybe this is going to become a big international business, the kind of anti-populism international. Uh, you know, I have to say from where I'm sitting, you know, the best of luck to them because it's absolutely needed. But Israel, like with the vaccine, will be the test case. Yep. Um, so we want to uh, talk a little bit about the Mensch of the Week, don't we, Jonathan? I love this. I love this because <laughs> we need we need something a bit cheery, although we've had it a little bit with the, with the inauguration. Yeah, with yes, Iran. I thought Mensch the Iran the story was very cheery. Yeah. <laughs> no, we well, we need some light in all the, in all the gloom. So who's your who, – well, shall I go with a, a choice? Yes, I'm going to suggest, I'm afraid there may be a tiny bit of a repeat here, because among my mentions last week was John Ossoff, the newly elected Democratic senator from Georgia. And I made the point there that he, by being there with Raphael Warnock, who also elected, that they were together between the two of them, symbolising the Black Jewish Alliance of uh, the 1960s. And I said there, uh, you know, reminded me of like Martin Luther King walking arm in arm with uh, the eminent rabbi and reaching for the name a three word three word name of an eminent rabbi i said samson raphael hirsch when of course i meant 
uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. I got my triple named rabbis mixed up. And we have such <laughs> sharp-eared listeners. We do. One very sharp-eared listener spotted that. So uh, it gives me great pleasure to correct that. Of course, I meant Abraham uh, Joshua Heschel. Um, but also, if I'm going to mention again, partly because he took his oath of office this week, sworn in by Kamala Harris, and he took his oath on a copy of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, as we would call it, a copy that was particularly steeped in history because it once belonged to Rabbi Jacob Rothschild, who, like Heschel, was an ally of Martin Luther King and was leader of the uh, Hebrew Benevolent Congregation Temple in Atlanta, which is the city's oldest synagogue uh, and was uh, itself bombed by white supremacists in the 1950s. So huge symbolism that this um, this uh, John Ossoff, 33 years old, you know, everybody's ideal son-in-law, um, uh, should swear in, uh, take, take the oath of office as a senator from Georgia with that book. I thought it was very, very meaningful. So I'm going to, uh, first of all, I like your mention of the week, but I'm going to nominate mine. And my mention, yes. of, the, my mention of the week is Kermit the Frog. Love. <laughs> Love. Bear with Love me here that. on this, Jonathan. Just bear with me, okay? <laughs> Follow this long, scenic route with me. You know that the, uh, you must know, that the copyright on uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby, which is one of the most beautiful books ever written, uh, expired uh, uh, this January. So the book uh, is in public domain. And that means that someone named Ben Crew wrote a script, um, basically a script of Gatsby's adaptation with the Muppets. <laughs> now, I know that sounds very strange. Of course, uh, Kermit the Frog is, uh, of course, Gatsby. And, you know, Miss Piggy is Daisy. This has, this, this, you don't need to explain this. And the whole green light at Daisy's dock, right? That whole thing uh, gets a, has a new meaning. Um, but uh, but I think that's a, a great thing. First of all, again, I, I, the F. Scott Fitzgerald is uh, one of the greats. The fact that he, the fact that he never got a Nobel uh, Prize uh, for literature is just um, I can't explain that. But uh, I, I think that it's it makes sense to me. I didn't read the screenplay. I just say that it makes sense to me that the that you can adapt that. It makes total sense. It makes total sense to me, partly because Jim Henson is up there with F. Scott Fitzgerald as a, a genius, the creative mensch. genius. Yes. But in all seriousness, the the adaptations by the Muppets are of on a, on a on a huge level of quality. And I say this: Christmas isn't a massive deal for obvious reasons in the Friedland family household, but it doesn't go by uh, completely unremarked. And one thing we do, one ritual we have, is that every year on Christmas Eve we sit down, all the family, and watch The Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> now, Yoni, you can laugh, but it is the most brilliant adaptation of the Charles Dickens novel, to the point where there are some critics who believe it is, get this, even better than the original book. It is brilliantly done. And therefore, I have every confidence that they could pull off, unlikely though it might sound, an adaptation, a Muppet version of The Great Gatsby. I thought I would get you with a, with Kermit the Frog. I thought I would do it. I thought I would succeed. Okay, before we uh, uh, conclude our second episode, I will just have to move on from frogs to ferrets because I uh, received a lot of comments from uh, American friends listening to our first podcast who had to uh, get more of an explanation on what is a reverse ferret, Jonathan. Yeah, well, I did use the phrase, and I used it perhaps in some ways unthinkingly. I used it accurately. It is a sudden... 
uh, reversal in a politician or organization's position, uh, often taken with no uh, recognition that they have reversed position. But I wasn't completely aware of the etymology of it, the origin of it. Uh, but it is a phrase, all, and nor was I really aware that it is particularly prevalent among journalists. British journalists use this all the time. Uh, apparently, I'm told it originates from uh, the Sun newspaper originally, and the time when that paper was edited by Kelvin McKenzie, who was a bit of a legendary editor, who used to say that the job of every journalist was to stick a ferret up the trousers of any <laughs> public figure, and when you that may, and make their life uncomfortable, right? Because what could be more uncomfortable than having a wriggling animal uh, nib- nibbling away in your uh, trousers? It goes back to an. Uh, See, now I'm going to have to interview politicians uh, on the evening news. I'm never going to be able to forget that and get no, by that. That's just going to be bring the, a, the bring image. A ferret, just the bring imagery. a ferret into the studio, Yoni. <laughs> Do, does it have to be an actual ferret? Or well, can the, it be, <laughs> the, you know, we're getting deep into this, but the, the this is a, a, there is an actual thing called ferret legging, which is a pastime in the north of England where, um, you know, supposedly, we hear, this is the custom, where supposedly a live ferret is put inside the sealed trousers of uh, the unwilling or willing victim and it's whoever lasts the longest before being nibbled uh, to a, a point of uh, uh, of no return uh, so when the when you change your mind uh, then it is reverse ferret. And so apparently Kelvin McKenzie, when it was clear that his paper had got it wrong and they had to change position, he would burst out of his office shouting, reverse ferret. Um, and it has now become part of media idiom in Britain. And it means if a politician or any institution changes their mind suddenly and dramatically, it's a reverse ferret. I'm glad to have given this gift to the Israeli media, I want to not, see you use not this phrase. Only, not only to the world, to the world. I, it still sounds to me like a, a strange Don Travolta move, move from Saturday Night Fever, but I'll take your your explanation, I think, is 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 better. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for this. Our second episode, I will say thank you to uh, Yair Bashan, Rom Atik, and Lior Friedman, our editor. And yep. uh, we will meet next week. Till then, goodbye, Yonit. Goodbye, Jonathan.